everyone. Welcome to Authors on the Air. I'm your host, Pam Stack. We're proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Welcome to Superstar Wednesday. Before we get started, I want to just remind you about a few books that have released this week. If you want to find out more, um, you are welcome to go to my personal page on Facebook or to Authors on the Air. We always do a long list. Um, Releasing this week by Deborah Webb is There Once Was a Child. Um, There's a great children's book by Cole Williams, Dr. Brainchild and Radar, that just released. Uh, um, uh, Also, there are, geez, there are so many for me to go through. Um, Let's see if I can find my list. One of them in particular is releasing at the beginning of the week is my guest today, Alan Eskins. Uh, Tom Pitts released 101, a novel. Uh, Catherine Jane released Diamonds to Die For. Diane Stuckett released Fool's Moon. James Bond Roulette by Jamie Mason is also out. PJ Fiala's Lincoln. And Elliot Parker, my colleague in the network from Now Appalachia, released A Knife's Edge. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author and multiple award-winning author, I should say, Alan Eskins, whom I had the pleasure of meeting at BoucherCon. He's very tall, or I'm very short, or both. Um, <laughs> Alan is um, new new book, The Shadows We Hide, will actually be out on Monday. But he is the recipient recipient of the Barry Award, the Minnesota Book Award, the Rosebud Award from West Coast Left Coast Crime, the Silver Falchion, um, has been a finalist for the Edgar, the Thriller, the Anthony, and the Audi. His books have been translated into 21 languages. I don't even know if I know 21 languages. Um, and his novel, The Life We Bury, is in consideration for a feature film. It is my honor and my pleasure to welcome Alan Eskins to the show. Alan, thank you for coming on Authors on the Air. Thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to be here. Thank you. So the first thing I want to mention is that um, you wrote all these books while you were still practicing criminal law? All except for The Shadows We Hide. Um, I published my first novel in 2014, The Life of Barry. And when I published that novel, I already had the, my second novel finished and ready to go, so I just kept writing. Um, in 2016, I closed my law practice. And so in 2017, when I was writing The Shadows We Hide, I, I got to relax a little bit. Um, the Life We Bury was such a huge, huge success that just in reviews alone, you have damn near 6,000 five-star reviews in Amazon itself. Um, that is an incredible thing. Was this your actually your very first book? Uh, no, actually. It's, it's, it's my first published book. It's not my first right. manuscript. Um, mm-hmm. I, when I got out of law school back in 1991, uh, I wanted to do something creative to kind of balance out the, the stiffness of being an attorney. Uh, mm-hmm. I come from a theater background, so I started looking around for something to do, and I thought, well, I could try writing. So in 1991, I started writing this novel about a 15-year-old boy. And for 20 years, I studied writing you know, off and on. I worked on this novel. Mm-hmm. And after 20 years, it wasn't ready, and I knew it. So I put that aside and started fresh with The Life We Bury. Um, 
you have a, just an interesting background from journalism to law, and then you also got an MFA in cre- creative writing. Um, you studied at the Loft Literary Center and the Iowa Summer Writers Festival. So you have all the education that comes with being a fantastic writer. Did those come before or after the life we bury? They came before. So that 20 years when I was writing that other manuscript was when I was trying to hone my my skills as a writer. Um, I didn't want to try and to get published until I felt that I could, I, I knew the craft well enough that I could teach it. Um, when I was growing up, my dad owned a drywall company. And so I grew up in construction, and he used to say that if you really want to learn something, learn it to teach it as, as if you're going to teach it. Um, because once you learn it that well where you can teach someone else how to do it, it's not just you know, an academic exercise in your head. It's you, you really know it. And so that's kind of what I wanted to do. I wanted to keep working at it, keep working at it until I knew it well enough that I could go out and, and teach it. And then I felt, okay, I'm ready to write a novel now. It's in your at a cellular level for you then, versus just being, um, you know, a, you a graduate of a program. Were you always um, a reader from childhood? Uh, no, actually, and I, I should clarify, I don't actually have an MFA degree. I have oh. about three quarters of an MFA degree. Okay. So in my in my bio, I say I hone my skills in the MFA program, but I never completed it because at the time I was practicing law. And I didn't need the degree because I didn't plan on, you know, actually going into academia and teaching. I wanted to learn what I felt I needed to learn for the craft. And when I took those classes and understood it, then I, I quit going to, to, the, to the MFA program. Um, but on to – what was your other question now? Oh, um, reading. About reading. Um, reading as a child, I've yeah. Been, I've always been a, a very poor reader. And uh, – I, I, as a student in grade school and high school, I only read if you absolutely forced me to, and even then I was really adept at skimming things and uh, you know, faking my way through it. Uh, and I've come to understand that I have this like overactive imag- imagination, mm-hmm. and I still to this day have difficulty reading a page in a book because as I'm reading it, one of two things is happening. I'm either daydreaming about something else that has been triggered by this book or I am getting frustrated that you know if this book is really good I think okay I shouldn't be reading I should be writing because I'm inspired to write now so I have found that the best way for me to consume books is audio I, I love audiobooks I do a lot of audiobooks um, but I don't I, I don't actually read the paper versions very much oh interesting I'm I'm going to do a show next week or the phone week. I can't remember which. For people who like audiobooks, I am not. I can't listen to audiobooks because my I can't sit still enough. And if I listen to it in the car, my mind wanders. I have other things that I'm thinking. It becomes ambient noise to me. I just don't listen to it. And um, because I love the written word so much, I want eyes on. And I will often read out loud if something is particularly good, because I think you hear it in a different way than you read it. I don't know if you've ever found that to be so, but um, I do. I do. When I'm doing my revisions, um, 
I will do you know two or three revisions of reading it on well I, I'll do it first on computer and then I'll print it up and read it on hard copy paper and it it appears different to me then and then I'll read mm. it out loud and it comes to me differently when I read it out loud as well especially the dialogue I would imagine yes really because what you write isn't necessarily the way people speak so I'm assuming that um you know the colloquialisms and the timbre and the tone and the the dialect and the accent, whatever you know, has to be different for all of your characters. Uh, it is a speed bump for me when dialogue is flat and I cannot delineate characters by their dialogue, their speech patterns. I, I agree. One of my favorite books on that topic is uh, *Poisonwood Bible* by Barbara mm-hmm. Kingsolver. Um, mm-hmm. She writes from, I think, five different points of view. And I can open that book to any particular page, just a random page, and just by reading that page, I can tell which point of view it is because the, the, the narrative voice and the dialogue is very, very distinct for each one of those characters. And I think that that's a very uh, instructive book to read when you're dealing with um, narrative voice and, and dialogue. Yeah, I want to go back to your your study of of literature and um, and and going to the MFA program. Now you, you've already gone to law school. You're practice. You're a practicing attorney. Um, writing writing for the law is very different than writing, obviously, for creative writing purposes, for entertainment purposes. Um, how did either of the two things hinder or help your writing in the law and writing for novels? Well, first of all, I got a degree in journalism, and that is also very, you know, word intensive. Yes. But it teaches you to, to write what's called the inverted pyramid, and then you get into law right. school, and it's you know declarative sentences, it's IREC um, formula of writing, and between those two. It had completely beat um, out of me the ability to use contractions um, <laughs> because you just don't use contractions, in, yeah. in, especially in law. And so if you, if, you, if you go back and look at the first draft of that first not manuscript I wrote, there's not a contraction in the whole thing. And so when you're listening to the dialogue, um, it, it's, it sounds like everybody's British because there's no contraction and it's very – you know, very formal, and I had to relearn how to use contractions. And so what I started doing was, because I was an attorney, I had access to all these transcripts where, you know, the court reporter is taking down the testimony, and you hear people talk. You see their words written in cadences, and you see how people, they don't start their sentences with the. They they will skip, you know, words at the beginning of the sentences. They will speak in clauses. And so yes. I started I started studying those transcripts to get a better grip on on my dialogue. So you know, I, I use whatever tools I have, and because I have access to those transcripts, you know, I use those a lot to try and get into the rhythm of of how people speak. Interesting. My brother was a journalism major, and then his graduate was in law, and he um, was not is not a criminal lawyer. He's a a corporate litigator, but um, he says it's different when he's reading you know it's a totally different mindset for him he's not a writer but when he reads it's a totally different mindset 
Um, is it true that your first book, your runaway bestseller, The the Life We Bury, the first published book, is um, in development for a film? Are you are we still at that point? We are still at that point. Uh, it's it's you, one of those uh, a, you know when you, when you when you read other people's stories about their books being turned into movies, uh, it's rare for it to happen in just a year or two or yeah. three. So sure. you see, you know, like. Um, Call me by my my call me by my name or by your name, whatever that book was. That took ten mm-hmm. years, and so you see these different stories of you know taking a long time, and so I'm very patient. It is still in development. Um, in fact, I've been in contact with my producer uh, just this week regarding. Um, I'm I'm working to help with the uh, the screenplay on it now. So, um, that we. We've been having some trouble getting a screenplay put together, so that's where I'm trying to step in to see if I can help out. And uh, fingers crossed, I'm, I'm still hoping it gets turned into a movie, and uh, uh, I think it'd be cool to see my words spoken by some actor on a screen. And yet that brings up a whole other kind of writing, uh, because script writing is so compact um, that whatever descriptive narrative you have going on is kind of out the window because that's done by the cinematographer, more or less. You, so you're, you're really writing for action and dialogue when you write a script. Isn't that so? Yeah. As, uh, as I write a screenplay page, um, I find that I have to edit out so much stuff, and then I stop and go back and edit out more because I'm always giving direction, you know, because I have it in my head how it happens a certain way, and in the book it happens this way, and so I think it should happen in the movie this way. But you have to give the director and the actors free reign to interpret it because a book is a singular thing. I sit down, I write the book, and I'll sure. people read it and edit it, edit it, but it's my book. A movie is a collaboration, and I understand right. that. So, so I, I am forcing myself to cut as much, you know everything out that that is in any way direction. It's you know let's let's keep it to the bare bones. Here's the here's the action line as thin as possible, and here's the dialogue. And they can always add too, if 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 mm-hmm. they need to plump it up, right? You can always oh, yeah. add yeah. to it. And, and um, is it also true that they will be taking just a storyline from the book versus the overall arching themes that come out of this book? Well, it depends on the interpretation. Now, if if my interpretation prevails, most of the themes will still be in the the final version. Um, mm-hmm. The the problem with that is it gets a little thick, a little cluttered, so um, right. I have to give a lot of thought into what's necessary and what's not to keep the story moving forward. Uh, in general, you know, the rule is the adapter, the screenwriter, owes the author nothing. Um, they can completely write something different uh, because my books tend to have a lot of moving parts and a lot of themes. It is the kind of book that could be taken apart and written, you know, in Instead of having one movie, have it be a trilogy of movies. But uh, I want to try and, and get it all into a single work. Interesting. So you've, you've moved beyond the optioned part, and you are actually kind of in a development phase, maybe not sold to someone yet. But you're further along than most people are. Yeah, it is in development. Yeah. Yeah, there, 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 there's people attached to it and stuff, but I can't talk about that, so... That's a, I don't you don't need to say. Let's talk about um, the new book, The Shadows We Hide. I, I know that this is a follow up from actually the life we bury. 
Will you please give listeners a little heads up about this book and uh, a little blurb maybe? Sure. Uh, First, let me talk a little bit about how I write. So I wrote The Life We Bury, and there are four or five people in that book that create my community of characters. So there's Joe Talbert, who is in The Life We Bury, a college student. Um, There's his mother, Kathy. There's his girlfriend, Lila. Um, There's Bodie Sandin, who's a law professor, and Max Rupert, who's a homicide detective. And then there's also the autistic brother, Jeremy. So going forward, I didn't write a series based on that first novel. I took the secondary characters and started telling their stories. So the next three books um, are more for Max Rupert, the homicide detective. Mm-hmm. And I want, what I wanted to do is I wanted to give Joe some time to grow up and move on with his life before I come back and revisit his decisions and what happened to him in the life we bury. So that's why uh, The Shadows We Hide begins six years after The Life We Bury ends. And it it starts with the external plot, which is Joe Talbert never met his father, but Joe Talbert right. was named after his father. And so Joe is the college student from The Life We Bury is now working as a reporter for the Associated Press. And he sees a press release where a man named Joseph Talbert has been found dead. And that starts the questioning, you know, is this man my father? If so, who was this man? What kind of man was he? How did he die? And so that begins the the mystery. Joe wants to find out what happened to this man. But I also get to revisit Joe's relationship with his girlfriend, Lila, who is, she's just finished law school. Now she's studying for the bar exam. Um, She's about to take that. I I get to revisit um, his relationship with his autistic brother, Jeremy. Um, in between the two novels, Joe has sued for guardianship and won. So he is now the legal guardian for his autistic brother, Jeremy. And I want to you know, delve into how that has put pressure on him and, and how that's affected him. And then the, the, big, the big elephant in the room is his mother. I mean, at the end of The Life We Bury, Joe um, and his mother – their last scene together was a fight, a huge fight, you know, where bones were broken. And I wanted to look at that relationship after six years of deterioration and, and how that's affected Joe. So those are, those are the, the personal plots that go along with the novel. I always have the vehicle plot, the, the mystery external plot that, you know, I spend a lot of time making sure that's good, but then I really, really want to delve into the relationships and the characters and and look at you know how their connections or disconnections impact them um your stories are the most character driven stories i've ever read uh, i think um yes there is a an, an a very interesting and very tangled life to unpack and a story to unpack and it's a fascinating story, but what I think what makes it fascinating is because of these intricately detailed uh, characters that you've given us to, to read about. Um, because each book is interconnected, but it's not necessarily a series, I, I, it kind of is, but it's not. You could pick up any of the books and read them and, and love them because I actually – uh, started reading your book um, at the Deep Dark Descending and then ha- had to go back to the beginning and start reading. 
because I liked the book so much. It was just so beautifully written. Um, Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, uh, do you have the premise for the story before you get writing? I, I don't know if you've started on your next book or not, um, but do you have a premise for what the next story will be, or do you have an idea about a character that should appear? How does that work for you? Well, like, like I said earlier about me being a daydreamer, I am a, a prolific daydreamer. So I've always got ideas jumping out at me, and over time I will, you know, pick and choose the ones that I think interest me the most. So, um, the the shadows we hide is my fifth book. My sixth book is already turned into my editor. Um, we'll be going through the edit process here in just a few months, in a few weeks. But and that sixth book is actually that book I spent 20 years working on. So really? I finally I finally perfected it, and it's it's coming out next year. But beyond that, I have ideas for books um, seven and eight and nine dancing around in my head. And as they start to gel, what I do is I, I have a, a sketchbook that I get out. I buy a sketchbook for each idea. And then I just write down the premises that, that strike me as interesting. And uh, w- when the time comes, I daydream the book from beginning to end, write, you know, outline it, get it all plotted. Um, I spend months outlining and plotting in my head before I actually type. But once I sit down to type, the book is already there. It's ready to go. I'm so fascinated by the concept of daydreaming. The first time I heard about it was when I spoke to David Morrell, who, of course, everybody knows is the co-founder of, of ITW and the creator of Rambo. Um, he, he said that daydreaming is the healthiest thing that adults can do, but they lose it once they are they grow into adulthood. He, he said daydreaming is not for kids. It helps you identify who you are, and it helps your creative process. It is a fascinating conversation with him. Every time I talk to him, I, I learn something new about it. But he is, he is the same way as you. And I know one other writer who writes the book in her head and, and then you know, figures it all out, spends months and months and months doing it, sometimes six months, and then sits down and writes it and then just has to refine it on revision. So I think it's a fascinating process. Um, do you feel like you, since you've retired from law now for two or three years, do you have more time to write, or is your process still the same? You're not rushing it because you're not working. I mean, it is what it is, right? I have more time to write, and the thing is I love writing. You know, I get up in the morning, I can't wait to get my computer out and if I'm, you know, in the writing stage, you know, start typing or if I'm in the daydreaming stage, get my sketch pad out and just sit there and think and, and daydream. I, uh, I, you know, it's, it's like that old saying, if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. This right. is, I just so enjoy this that uh, it, it is just every part of it's fun. So when you were talking about Dave Morrell, you know, the, the adult daydreamer in me is, is just as prolific as the child, the child daydreamer in me. Um, and I love daydreaming. It's it's what I do. You know, if, if I weren't a writer, I was still going to be a daydreamer. So, how wonderful! That's great. Um, it, it's good. I like that very much. I I kind of am a, a daydreamer too. I mean, I'm not a writer, but I I have a lot of daydreams too. Um, Alan, I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to speak to you. Um, 
congratulations on all your successes. I know that there'll <clears throat> excuse me be many more, and I hope that you will come back again sometime. Maybe when I um, would you get your new love book. to. I, I I just it's uh, fascinating to me. I'm exceptionally honored that you're here today. Thank you for being on the show, and um, good luck with the writing. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much, Alan. And that's our show for right now, folks. I'll be back at 5 o'clock with another author for Superstar Wednesday. Remember, you can find Alan online at Alan Eskins, A-L-L-E-N-E-S-K-E-N-S.com. And his books are in brick and mortar and online everywhere. Thanks so much, Alan, and thank you. Thank you, Mom and Dad. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.